Please listen carefully. 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 Hello, and welcome to the Utterly Moderate Podcast, where two reasonable social scientists discuss important topics by focusing on just the facts and none of the unneeded opinions and biases. I'm Allison Dagnus, and I'm a political scientist. Well, hello, Allison. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. You're just not Muppety enough. I know. I'm Lauren Seppert. I'm a sociologist. How and not a Muppet. Today? Not a Muppet. Sorry, boo. You're not. They're drunk for a second weekend. I know. Row. Really? And yet we're not. <laughs> yet we are not. How's it going, Allie? It is good. It's dreary. It's rainy outside. It's so Buckets outside. I hope you have a rain jacket and I hope that you have uh, taken the appropriate health precautions. You got your flu shot and you are, um, you know, you're, you're, you have Kleenex and you're not standing too close to our students because uh, <laughs> they're just sneezing and coughing all over the place. I actually didn't get my flu shot yet because last year I'm a I'm a big worrier, as you know. I, I do. About everything. Know that, yeah. Piano is going to fall on my head. There's a high risk of a piano mm-hmm. falling on my head. And um, so last year I got it early like I usually do, you know, early mm-hmm. fall. Mm-hmm. And then... And I read this statistic recently that uh, it was in the New York Times. They said that last year, because of all the masking and staying home and all that kind of stuff, Mm -hmm. over the same flu season where they usually had like 200,000 cases of the flu, they had 2,000, right? And so, which made this totally make sense to me because last year I got it early and it Mm -hmm. wore off and I got the flu and nobody I knew had gotten the flu. And I went to the doctor and they said, and they legitimately said this, they said, you're the first flu case we've had. No way. <laughs> yeah, it was terrible. Oh no, so I don't I remember get you getting soon. sick. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna get it soon, but I'm I'm trying to time it so it it lasts me until summer. So. Oh, got it. Okay. Wow. You so you didn't get it? They give us flu shots here, but you didn't get one here. I'm trying to. Yeah, I don't want to have to worry about it wearing off. And uh, you want to space it out. Oh, by the way, and I know you like this. Uh, new thing. I, I always have to give my new update on what Miles is doing. Miles is my toddler for anybody who's not aware. Oof. Uh, his new thing is that when I <laughs> leave my daycare now, he doesn't say much, but he, he turns around and puts his little Muppet hand up and says, bye-bye. Oh my gosh. That is so cute. Bye-bye. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> it's awesome. Oh, I, I, I never look all, all children are wonderful children are a blessing and i never ever want to have competition with children but. <laughs> but last weekend was homecoming and uh there there was a there was a there was a clear winner of, of homecoming and it was tenley the baby of political science at homecoming who was there oh. in a little bear outfit and oh. i'm here to tell you yeah i know i uh i with tenley's mom and dad's permission i stole Tenley and was very loath to give her back to her parents. Um, and, uh, and I was just walking around and all these, you know, kids were like, Dr. Dagnus. Oh, are, are you excited to have a grandchild? I was like, no, I am not. Cause I am very young. Thank you. I have simply stole. I was like, okay, back off kids. What the hell? Um, I've stolen a baby and they were like, Oh, okay. And I was like, shouldn't you be calling the cops or something? I mean, I'm standing here telling you I've stolen, 
stolen a baby. What is <laughs> wrong with you? Hey, ay, ay, ay. Um, did you know, Lawrence, that October was National Book Month? I and because we booked this specifically for that. And yes, but you know, I think I think it should be National Book Month every month because I don't know about you, but I love reading. That actually is one of my favorite things to do when I have free time. I got a book in my hand. How about you? I as well, Allie. Uh, what do you like to read? I have three different categories of books. I read books to make me smarter. Um, I read books to make me laugh until milk comes out of my nose. And then I read books that are just fun and are distracting. And that's it. And if there's another kind of book that bumps into that, like a book that makes me cry, I get very upset. Because I don't want to read things that make me cry. I don't want to read things that make me scared. I just want to learn something and be smarter. I want to laugh my head off. Or I just want to have a really, really good time and be distracted. And so if something is boring, I'm annoyed. If something is sad, I'm annoyed. If something is scary, I'm annoyed. So please don't send me any of those books. <laughs> and my other motto is, by the way, books are unfunded mandates. So an unfunded mandate in political science is when the government forces you to do something, but they don't give you the money to do it. When you give somebody a book, you are forcing them to read something that you like, but you're not giving them the free time to do it. <laughs> and so an unfunded mandate of a book is when you're like, oh, my God, you're going to love this book. Unless you're really sure the person's going to love the book. Don't give them a book because your reading taste may not be somebody else's reading taste, which is why books are kind of unfunded. Man, I try not to give um, books to people who I don't know, or I try not to give books that I don't love, 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 love to almost anybody. But I'm I'm a big sucker for a really good book. So that's why I end up giving a lot of books anyway, because I really fall in love with books hard. Yeah, I've seen you give books a lot. So uh you yeah. love a lot of I gave you and I do. I gave you a book. I gave you a Matthew Norman book. You did. Which, you know what? That broke one of my rules because that Matthew Norman book actually made me cry. But oh. I love, 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 loved it so much that it was worth it. It actually was worth it to You to, loved it so much that you stalked the author. I did. You stalked the author. And <laughs> and then I kept on stalking the author after that. <laughs> but shh, we're not going to say that on the podcast. No, no, no. I'll save that. Let's <laughs> save that for off the air. When anybody else could hear that. Um, oh, I love his writing so much. I, there's something about good writing. It's like acting. You know, everybody thinks that they can act and everybody thinks that they could write. And I guess to a certain degree, sure ish but when someone's really good at it it is transporting mm. and so when someone's really good at it i that's when i i actually like that's when i will i will buy eight copies of a book and start giving it out so i've got there are a couple authors i have where i have bought eight to ten copies of a book and given it out as christmas presents and those authors deserve all of the all of the treats in my you're, you're right about acting and writing. I mean, I, I often will be watching a movie and seeing somebody just really chew the scenery mm -hmm. and look at that and say, I, I really honestly have no idea how they're doing that. Or I'll be reading a really good book and I'll say, mm -hmm. like, on my best day, I couldn't have produced this. This is amazing. Yes. You know, a, a book that'll make you actually like stop reading or gasp or like put it down for a second and go, 
oh my God, or make you stop and read a passage out loud. That is incredible. I love that. I absolutely love that. That's a gift. And by the way, like, I know that everybody, I was actually just talking to Lance Bailey about this. Everybody thinks that they have a novel inside of them. And everybody thinks that that novel inside of them is their autobiography. And um, I don't think that's true. I think most of us are actually, even for those of us who have pretty interesting lives, most of us cannot craft our lives into ways that are that interesting (laughs) on paper, because that is skill. And it's not something you're born with. It's something that you have to hone and work at. I mean, you really have to work at it Um, and you have to practice and you have to take draft after draft after draft after draft uh, in order to to get it right. And um, and it's just a lot of it's a lot of labor and it's a lot of effort. And so my I just am in awe of people who put in that kind of devotion into the written word, because what comes out is so good sometimes that it really makes me stop and uh, and gasp in admiration and awe. Well, and today we're going to be talking to somebody who helps get those books to market, aren't we? We are. And here's the best news of all. Um First of all, it is our guest is Heather Lennon, and uh, Heather is um, she works in children's publishing. She has worked in publishing across the board. She's worked in fiction and nonfiction for adults, and um, also young adults, and in children's publishing as well. Um, but the way that Heather comes to us is that we were roommates in college together. So I have known Heather since we were both. 19 years old and both of us really sort of glommed onto each other because we were um, we were like those nerdy uh, reading girls in college at a college where everybody was not necessarily a nerdy reading girl. So um, we managed to have a lot of fun while also reading a lot of really good books. But she's going to talk a lot about publishing and um, what kids are reading these days and what we are reading these days. What are you reading these days? What's your favorite book? My favorite book ever. Uh, I don't know if I can name that, but um, I actually, with the kids and the job and like all the stuff that I have going on, mm-hmm. um, I just, I'm a huge proponent of double and triple dipping. And so I only read stuff that I'm going to learn from and that I then can use in my lectures that I then can use in my research. So it's pretty much all nonfiction. Um some of my favorite books, I mean, I just read Adam Grant's Think Again, which was really good. Um, books along those lines, like Lee McIntyre's books mm-hmm. and um, Tom Nichols' books. Friends um, of the Pod. Friends of the Pod, yeah. But uh, yeah, mostly nonfiction because, again, if I'm going to devote any amount of my day to anything, it's got to be something that I can use as much as possible. <laughs> that seems fair. When your kids yeah. get to be a little bit older, you'll have a little bit more free time. Yeah. Maybe you can get into some some more fun reading. Well, what do you say? Do you want to bring on Heather Lennon to the show? I think we should. All right. We'll speak with Heather Lennon coming up next. Heather Lennon, welcome to the show. So excited to be here. Thank you for having me. You are in children's publishing, so we want to we want to talk about publishing writ large and also publishing for 
for the wee ones. Um, but first, kind of a, a broad question. How has children's publishing changed in the era of smartphones and social media? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I deal mostly with picture books um, and some YA, but, you know, and I think you probably see it more with the young adult books. But, um, you know, as far as picture book goes, one of the things that it's actually been great is the more people are reliant on screens, the more they actually want real books. Um, you know, no, like I think when the, you know, when the ebook started, everybody was like, oh, it's the death of the book. Who's going to want a real book? Well, everybody wants a real book because, you know, everyone's tired of their computers and, you know, nobody wants to curl up with a baby on their lap and their laptop, like, you know, or, or an, <laughs> even an iPad, even an iPad is not really like very snugly at night, you know, at the, the glare of the screen. And they've done a million things to try to get around that. But at the end of the day, you cannot replicate good old paper and uh, that tactile sensation. And then, you know, as far as YA publishing, everything moves so fast, right? So I think, you know, on the one hand, you have authors who are really good at incorporating what's happening right now and how kids use their phones. Like nobody texts anymore. Now the kids are all on Snapchat, but in another six months, they'll all be somewhere else. So I mean, just generally speaking, I think people try to keep it general because they know that, you know, your technology is going to be probably outdated by the time the book hits the market. So um, whatever, whatever's cool now won't be cool in another year or six months. So what is hot right now? You mentioned um, the bestsellers. What's, uh, what are the big topics in kids books and in YA books right now? Um, things that are hot right now in YA is mystery. Um, there's a book called one of us, uh, one of us is lying and, um, that sort of started a whole craze, um, with mysteries, which a mystery had been kind of dead for a long time. So for the last couple of years, mystery has been really popping. And then, um, fantasy is always strong. So fantasy is still strong, but then, realistic fiction, which deals with, you know, real life issues, um, LGBTQ, Black Lives Matter, um, you know, things that are going on in real communities like the, it, there's it's a real potpourri of what's hot. I have two follow up questions to that. And I guess the first is, I think one of us is lying has been turned into either a Netflix series. Yeah. Okay. So I guess my first question then is, does that help book sales or does that? Okay. It does. Yeah. Because it does. Then I, then that feels sort of, um, old school, right? Because when a book was turned into a movie, um, there was an old joke that, um, some author wrote that said, you know, if your book was featured on Fresh Air, uh, when you left WHYY in Philadelphia, they gave you a roll of stamps you could put on your book that said soon to be turned into a major motion picture film. <laughs> um, you know, and then same thing with like Oprah's book club, right? And um, mm -hmm. that was always the ticket to the ticket to the 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 big screen and the, the good side. Um, and so is the same idea kind of, okay, Netflix is going to option it and then just cha-ching, cha-ching, like this is great because everybody will run out and buy it. Is it just more, is it more exposure? Is it that then everyone's going to want to read it or is it that everyone want to have it? Oh, 
Uh, that's a good question. I mean, it can go. Does it matter as long as they buy it? Who cares, <laughs> right? I mean, as long as they buy it, that's that's the the big thing. It's an opportunity. I mean, I think like say you published a book five years ago and it had a nice run and people liked it. It got good reviews and sales were good. You know, maybe it, maybe it was on the bestseller list. But now it's five years later and it's not on the bestseller list anymore, but it's going to be on Netflix. So now you have an opportunity to go out and publicize it again. And people actually are interested because it's going to be on Netflix. Maybe they should read it first before it's on Netflix. I am like, that is me. I am that person. Mm -hmm. And there is the other person who's like, oh, I saw it on Netflix and I would like to see if it's better as a book or, you know, or I liked it so much, I bet I would like the book too. Um, or I want to collect it because it has a picture of the star of the series on the cover and I like them and I want them in my bedroom, you know, like that happens for sure. Um, you mentioned um, kind of hot topics right now and, and LGBTQ issues and um and diversity. So has the national attention to diversity affected children's publishing? Oh. How has it, how, um, what kind of effects are you seeing? Oh yeah, abs absolutely. I mean, I think there has been a lot of conversation for years and years and years about it, not even just children's publishing, like all children's publishing is not very, all publishing period is in America is not very diverse. Um, and you know, it's been one of those things for years where it'd be like, hmm, publishing is not very diverse. Here's a study about how not very diverse it is. And then, you know, people would say, well, we did these three things. And, you know, I, I can't speak for any one company or anything, but, you know, people would say that's terrible. We should fix that. And then it just wouldn't get fixed, you know? Um, and I think the difference between like what's happened over the last two years is like, certainly there were things that were in the works and there were things, um, you know, books that were already out that were already addressing issues. Um, but the last years we've seen like really major changes with a lot of people of color being um, named publishers, uh, you know, of, of large publishing houses, which is, you know, I think the trickle down effect, it comes down the line and it just makes it better for everybody for the books that are selected and what's available out there for people to read. So huge. Yeah. It's been, it's been huge. And I, I don't know, I, I kind of don't know if that's any different to be honest than, other industries, you know, I don't, I, I'm only in, I'm only in publishing, but I don't know if, you know, people see that in, uh, like regular manufacturing companies, if they're also having like the same push for diversity and, you know, different voices and all of that, or if it's, I don't think it's purely a publishing thing. I think it's, it's everywhere right now. Is it possible that maybe, because books are so important for kids that maybe it starts with publishing and then in like the next generation, we see that exponential growth of diversity into other industries. Because at this point, we're not seeing a whole lot of diversity in, um, you know, like the Fortune 500 leadership mm -hmm. or in um, Congress or... Uh, lots of other places. So maybe, you know, maybe that shows the importance of reading. Like maybe this is going to be um, the start of a big uh, wave. It could be. I mean, you lead me into my favorite topic, which is 
sort of the the influence of libraries and librarians and you know everywhere i think there's sort of a uh stereotype right of like the stodgy librarian who is a censor but in reality um you know in my experience it's really like nothing is farther from the truth that librarians are really the people who move the social agenda forward really aggressively you know and um I've been, I'm not a uh, librarian, but working in book publishing, we're all really involved with the American Library Association. And, you know, their conferences are really fascinating and the things that they talk about and the, you know, the steps that they make. I mean, they had a big, um, a, a really big, huge conversation that resulted in there was a, a an award. It was the Laura Ingalls Wilder Award. And it was basically like a lifetime achievement award. And, um, you know, a lot of people feel like her treatment of Native peoples in America is not sensitive and that it's, you know, like really like it's outdated. Um, Ma was not, Ma Ma says some like very indelicate things that don't work in this century at all. Like even with explanation, it's just hard to finesse. Um, and, and it was a big conversation, I would say, for a couple of years in the ALA. And it resulted in their renaming the award, um, the Legacy Award, I believe. Um, librarians, children's publishing, think masters talk a lot about kids needing windows. Uh, they say like windows and doors to see themselves, to walk through, to you know be reflected in mirrors, windows and mirrors, doors. But, you know. Um, but I think I think that is part of it. Right. And then, you know, you're a kid, you grow up, you see yourself in that role. And who knows if it helps you get it? I hope so. Can you um, this is probably an obvious question, but can you explain to the audience why that why you'd pay so much attention to librarians? I'm assuming because they're buying a lot of the books. Right. So you have to produce books that they want. Is that what's going on? They buy a lot of the books. They review a lot of the books and their mm. opinions are good opinions. I mean, they're, you know, I mean, it's really, um, you know, I was a writing major in college and I've done a lot of creative writing, but I, you know, definitely believe like once you write something and you put it out there, people read it and you, no matter what your intention was, you have to be open to what people are actually reading, what like what people are actually thinking when they read your book, you know, maybe your intention was this, but everybody else who reads it isn't getting it. Right. So it's, it's a failing and there's, you know, there's things that need to be pointed out that way. And then there's also things that need to be pointed out that are admirable that people are doing that might fall by the wayside because they don't have a giant print run, you know? So uh, you know, a, li- a librarian can sort of point out where a book can be better. I mean, any book reviewer can point out where a book can be better. Um, they're thoughtful reviewers, basically. <laughs> Besides librarians, who are the other major players that kind of shape the market? Well, there's book review. Um, there's book review publications like Kirkus and Publishers Weekly and Children's Publishing School Library Journal. You know, all of the the Horn Book. The Horn Book is like a, is a small magazine that packs a lot of um, packs a lot of wallop. There's um, there are a lot of academics that 
you know, in children's publishing, we listen to a lot. Um, and then, of course, there's the accounts. You know, you, you have to listen to the accounts. Um, but I will say, like, in my in my experience and other publishers might have different experiences. But in my in my experience, the large accounts, their feedback generally tends to be more towards this isn't for our customers or we'd like this better if the jacket had foil on it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> the jacket was a little jazzier, popped off the shelf more. I, I've never really had a, a an account like get into like the content of one of our books and critique it so much so but they do get behind it though like if you if you publish a book and they really like it and the buyer at a barnes and noble or amazon or wherever really steps up and supports it it's a huge huge blessing before you go on ali i just want to for our listeners because they can't see you there was some kind of imitation of jazz hands there when she said jazz it up. <laughs> um can you since you're talking about you know the big publishing houses. Can you talk about how the consolidation of the big publishing houses has um, an effect? Does it have a big or a small effect? I'm assuming it has a very big effect on publishing on what we read and how we read it. Um, Or maybe it doesn't. I don't know. I, I, I feel like and and maybe it's just kind of the the books that come to my house via a library or Amazon, um, that small boutique bookstore that uh, knows exactly what it is we want because <laughs> they have such an intimate relationship with us. Um, it, it feels like there are just a lot more series from, you know, fewer authors. Like it just it feels like everything is just sort of like folding in on itself. And I don't know if that's because the publishing industry is folding in on itself or maybe I'm just getting old and I'm not really seeing a very larger picture. I tend to be an optimist. Um, they just Penguin Penguin Random House just put out uh, like a statement. It was in the news, and they were saying that you know because they're merging with Simon and Schuster, and they they just put out a statement about how you know their imprints will be able to bid against each other, which is which is how things are now. You know, like a big publisher has different imprints, and sometimes there's some overlap, and um, they both want the same book, and you go in, but you have different you have different teams and you offer different things, you know, ideally, I like ideally you're, you're not just a bunch of imprints that are all like kind of the same, but just headed up by different people. Ideally, you know, this imprint has, you know, uh, more of a footing in this segment of the business. And this one is really great with publicity or, you know, uh, celebrity driven books or that kind of thing. Um, so, you know, really it, 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 kind of all goes up to the top. And I think at some point there has to be a squeeze, but there's been so much squeeze over the last 20 years, even, you know, um, there, there was another article recently about the mid list and how mid list is sort of people think it's a dirty word, but you know, what mid list used to be 20 years ago was just like, Oh, look, these are new authors. We're, you know, trying them out going to give them a chance to break in. We'll send them to a couple of their local stores, see if they can develop like their own little fan base. You know, they're not a big, huge bestseller yet, but you know, we're going to give it, we're going to give it a shot. And somehow that became a dirty word. And it became like, you know, if you weren't the headline book of the season, the, the, 
if if you weren't if you weren't the big book, you were nothing, you know. And and that's totally not true because like like any business, you know, it's that eighty twenty rule. Twenty twenty percent of the titles sold really carry everything, you know, and the other eighty percent flounder along, you know, and maybe find a life later on Netflix or something. <laughs> and did book sales go up during COVID? Because people were stuck inside? Were people buying more books? A lot of book sales went up during COVID. Um, a lot of backlist book sales went up during COVID. What's backlist? Backlist is books that are not new. And okay. again, a lot of publishers define it differently. Like some publishers will say backlist is anything that isn't coming out this season, you know? So, um, like I work with um, fall summer, spring season um, every year. But some publishers just have two, two seasons. Um, so some publishers would say, well, anything that's not this season coming out right now, that's backlist. Um, and other publishers would say, well, it's anything over a year old. It's nebulous. It's nebulous. <laughs> but but basically the big, the big blessing with... COVID was that people were reading more. So sales were actually great. The downside was that discoverability was like really hard because all of the things we normally do, like go to a conference like the American Library Association, or um, we used to have the book expo, but it folded during COVID. Um, you can't, you couldn't do the last two years, you know, and um, there were virtual shows, which, which was actually a good experience, but not the same, not the same. So, um, so, you know, so a lot of people said things like, Oh, I never read that Jane Austen book. I guess now is a guy here. It's good. It's now is a good time to download Pride and Prejudice. Now is a good time to read. Oh, you know, I know I like, David Baldacci, I'll read all of them, you know. <laughs> and I, I certainly did that. I binged, I binged through a bunch of weird stuff. So, <laughs> um, can you, if you were, um, and and you know, you may not have hard and fast rules for this. You may not have a whole lot of concrete to say about this, but I am interested to hear what you have to say because I have students who come ask me these questions. I have adults who ask me these questions and I, I don't have the, f the foggiest idea of what to tell them. Yeah. So if you were sitting in our office as an academic advisor in college and you had somebody come to you and say, I want to get into your industry, I want to get into to publishing, whether it's as an author or on your side of it, you know, actually, actually working to procure books and, and discover authors and all that kind of stuff. What are some of the typical paths people take in terms of both majors, but also like, the other stuff they're doing while they're in college preparing for that career? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, oh, the world is changing so much. So, so you know, def definitely hard to say. We, we just hired an assistant and she was an English major and um, a really good writer and um, really knew our books. You know, like when we had the interview, like she was, she knew a lot of like our smaller books, which was great and could talk about them. Um, so a passion for books. I mean, publishing is, is generally known to not be like a super well-paying industry. So kind of the baseline for people being here is that they really want to be part of it. So that's, that's a good thing. Um, Do most of them have a college degree and, is, and, and if so, are they mostly English? 
Yeah, I think so. I think yeah. I think so. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna go with yes. I mean, and, you know, people come from all all sorts of places, but I think mostly, yeah, mostly mostly English degrees. And then there's some feeder programs that you can get into, like Columbia um, and NYU both have um, publishing programs um, that are like you would do it after you graduated from college. And it's like, I think it's like a six week program where you go and um, it's kind of like a mix of internships and classes. Um, That's it. That really is like a lot of the big publishers pull people from those programs. They have them at other colleges too. I could, I could give you a list if you like. If I gave you a stack of resumes, what would impress you? What would pop out to you as impressive on the resumes? And then also what, what what a person could say in an interview would would impress you? Well, I will tell you, like my my thing that makes me crazy is that there's a lot of hard work that goes into book publishing. So, um, you know, people think it's like, oh, I, you know, I, I'll sit there and read, and it's like, well, like most of the reading you're going to do in your spare time, like on the, you know, I used to. Back in the old days, I used to commute, you know, you sit on the train or whatever and read on the way home. And that's great. Like, it was great to have that time. Um, but there's a, there's a lot of, this is going to sound like if anybody else in publishing listens to this and is like, that's not my experience. I, but my experience has been, there's a lot of boxes. There's a lot of boxes. You're like, you know, you, Books are not tech. So there is a lot of like heavy boxes showing up in your office, in your house. You've got to bring them from here to there. You've got to, you know, maybe you're shipping them, but maybe you're carrying them around New York City and they're heavy. So, um, so things that stand out to me in a, in a, an interview is someone that I know is going to carry the box. That's good. Um, and not be like, oh, I'm, <laughs> you know, I mean, unless they, unless they obviously like cannot carry the box, but, um, you know, like somebody, basically it's, it's a metaphor for saying like somebody who will roll up their sleeves and do the, and do a lot of work and, um, and it might not all be fun, glamorous reading work, glamorous, so glamorous. So passion, passion for books, um, willingness to work hard. Yeah. I mean, I think for, for an entry level position that that's really what it comes down to, right. It's just, some, you just want somebody who's, who's w- willing to pitch in, willing to learn. Um, you know, I, I, I had, I was looking for an internship and one of the colleges that I contacted, um, I said like, again, back to boxes. I was like, you know, I was like, we could, I could make a program and we could, you know, kind of culminate with going to the, American Library Association and the trade show and all that, you know, how to set that up, how, you know, how it works, how the booth works and all that. And they're like, oh, well, we would want our students to be editing the books. And I was like, okay, well, the editor has been editing books for like 20 years. So I don't think the author would really appreciate us just like handing off a book to a, co- a current college student. Like it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Like there's, you, you put some time in first, you know, to, Listen and learn. So if I'm I'm reading you correctly, if I have a student who comes to my office and says they want to be in publishing, I should tell them, stop reading, stop (laughs) writing, and start doing push-ups? Yeah. 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 (laughs) Yep. Yep. But I think um, it does help to be a good writer because, you know, a lot of... 
a lot of what we do is writing catalog copy and flap right. copy and, you know, presentations. I mean, I do a lot of, I'm more on the sales and marketing side and I do a lot of presentations, you know, a lot of, believe it or not, a lot of talking, a lot of, uh, video presentations um, and all of that. So um, good writing skills, good communication skills. They, those are, those are really, really important. But, um, but yeah, like my, I, I will say like whenever I've had interviews and, you know, you have someone come in and you can just tell it's like, either they think they're going to be at work and be writing the books, which is not how it works. Or um, they're going to come in and immediately have like a very substantive job. Well, not how I didn't have a very substantive job for like at least five years or more. I mean, it took, it took a long time before I got, I got a job that I felt like I was really jazzed about. One thing that you, if you're looking back on your college career, one thing you wish you'd been doing more of to prepare you for your job now. Drinking with her roommate. No, we did a lot of that. Never mind. I was going to say, did you guys really need to do more of that? Well, I mean, there were mornings that we real that went that were empty. Okay, there were mornings that went we didn't need unfilled. To sleep so much, yeah, yeah, totally true. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, uh, things I wish I had done more on. So I was on. I did do literary magazine in college, and that was a great experience. And I'll say, like on the one hand, it didn't really have like much bearing on what I ended up doing. But the flip side is actually much later in my career, it did because again. Oh gosh, probably about 15 years into my career, I got to a place where I was the person making the catalog, you know, and then having that experience of actually like running the production schedule for the campus literary magazine and knowing like, okay, well, I have to get, you know, the submissions at this date and I have to get everything, you know, responded to by this date. And then I've got to get it off to the printer by this date later in life was actually kind of helpful. You know, it was, it was good to have been through that. Again, you go to work at a big publisher, there will be people in production who will handle everything like so much for you, you know, everything at a, at a big publisher, it's different than a little publisher because at a big publisher, um, you know, there are so many people handling so many different aspects of the book. And then small publishers tend to be more like, Hey kids, let's put on a show, you know, like more uh, collaborative. So I'm just going to let you know that I'm going to send you my resume. I have a pretty good, impressive bench press. So go ahead. Uh, if I ever get to leave the house and go to another <laughs> trade show and I've got to, I've got to, you know, hump 20 boxes around the Javits Center or something, that's what happens. Like, I'm, you're going to sound like I'm obsessed with boxes, but that's what happens. Like, you go to these convention centers, they're huge, right? And then you get a, you know, like you get a, a flash and it's like, oh, the book signing for blah, blah, blah has been moved from this place. 20 feet away from you to three halls away. And you've got 80 books in boxes, hardcover books that you've got to like get over there. There's no hand truck in the whole hall. Like <laughs> I'm just telling you, like it's glamorous. It's called glamorous is the word I use to describe it. So, And Lawrence, your time uh, could be coming sooner than you think. Cause there was a point several years ago where Heather called me and said, okay, we have a book. It's at a distribution center. 
of all places in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. Could you or Pete pick up the boxes and just bring it to D.C. to a bookstore there? Because I, I may need you to do that. And I said, I'm teaching this after. Yeah, mm-hmm, Pete can absolutely do that. And so Pete, like, he was like, I'm ready. I'm ready. And he, like, gassed up the car. And he was like, I'm just, I am ready. Tell me where to go. And he got to the, I think he got to the um, distribution center. And they were like, no, I think we loaded those onto the onto the truck. In the middle of in the middle of a blizzard. It was also it was like it was like this huge blizzard. We had an author. He flew in to like do this event Mm -hmm. like he made it in. And then they were like, oh, the books didn't make it out. And I was like, are you kidding me? (laughs) 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 You know, but yeah, events, events are events are also very glamorous stressful um mm-hmm. yeah i don't know I, lo- I actually love i love book publishing it's really it's really fun i mean it it's fun it's it's basically different every day and the books are all different and that's um i i had a roommate not Allie, but i had another roommate who um worked for motorola and sold she did marketing for cell phones and i was like man i cannot imagine sitting in meetings like all day, like they would have their sales meetings and they would sit and be like, talk about cell phones all day long, which I couldn't do that. I mean, I could never do that, but it's fun to talk about books all day long. Like they, you know, every every book is different and you know, the, it keeps it changed up all the time. So I don't know. It's, it's been a good place for me for a long time. Well, and you've always, I can, I can out you here. I mean, you've always been a reader. Yes. You know, I mean, since day one of college, you've always been a reader. So it was not surprising for you to go into publishing because that's always been a great love of yours. I was like um, a weird little kid who like want I like I used to go to the library when I was little, like in like not even in high school. And I would sit on the floor and I would read Publishers Weekly. And <laughs> would you really? I would. I really would. I would read that weird kids you know, back I was, again. <laughs> I was interested in that. Yeah. I was interested in like the industry news and like trying to, I mean, it was, I was, I was weird. And I have a teenager now and I'm like, you know, I always feel kind of weird. Cause I'm like, yeah, I knew I wanted to do this when I was like nine, you know, it's just so, it's so weird. But um, yeah, if you dream it, kids, you can do it. So. You could be in publishing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. Mm-hmm. When when people when when people come to you and say, "What do they say most?" Okay, so I, I find that um, people say very funny things. We, you and I have um, a mutual friend, uh, someone who I grew up with, who now you are also friends with, Michelle, who is an oh, English okay. professor, mm-hmm. and they will say. Oh, you're an English professor. Have you read The Bridges of Madison County? And she's like, Yeah, I don't. No, 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 no. I'm a I'm a Shakespeare expert. Mm-hmm. And they're like, You should really read The Bridges of Madison County. <laughs> um, so it's it's that kind of thing. Like people will find out what you do and then move in the exact wrong direction. What mm-hmm. is the exact wrong direction that people move in when they find out that you're in publishing? And uh, and it's a fairly leading question because then I want to get to self-publishing. Uh, I said, actually, it's funny. I just <laughs> I just had a I just had a phone call today um, from my from my sister actually, and she had told me before that her one of her children's teachers was writing a book, and I was like happy to. T- I'm always ha- I'm always happy to talk to people, and I have like a standard 
chatter that I tell them about children's publishing. Like if you want to get into it, what you should do and, and that kind of thing, which I actually didn't tell you, but I'll tell you later. Um, so I was like happy to talk to her. I didn't talk to her and she went ahead and self-published her book. And, um, and my sister was like, what would you do with that? And I was like, I can't do anything with that. Like, because I work for a traditional publisher and, you know, but a traditional publisher, someone submits a manuscript. If it's a picture book, we pair them up with an illustrator. Um, you know, like we, we handle, we buy the, we own the rights, you know, we handle the whole thing from soup to nuts. It's a totally different animal than self-publishing. Um, so, so that happens a lot. That happens a lot. And then, um, not my sister, but then usually what happens is at, at that point, then I tell everyone about this organization called the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators, SCBWI, um, which is a great dot org, uh, which is a great organization. It's, it's national and they also have local chapters and they really, um, like it's it's really a, an extraordinarily giving organization as far as getting critiques for your work, having people help you figure out how you could get an agent or like who would possibly be interested in buying your manuscript. Like it's a great organization. Um, so I usually tell them about that. And then the next thing that happens is they come back and they go, okay, well, what else should I do? And I'm like, <laughs> that's what you should do. You should do that. And then keep Leave doing my it. Office. Like, yeah. Keep trying. <laughs> like I, you know, that's the, I actually had like a, a thing where I would tell people, I always said, this is like my, you know, my free advice that I have that I give out. And then I tell people anymore, like you'd have to hire me for like a consulting project and I don't consult anymore, you know? So do you, can you explain, um, there are a couple books that it feels like somebody came up with the idea. Maybe they self-publish, and I don't know the trajectory of these children's books, but I do know that that I own both of them. One is Everyone Poops, yeah. and and maybe that was self-published, but then it was bought by a, a major a major company mm-hmm. uh, because that is ubiquitous. It is as ubiquitous as poop. I mean, it is just, you know, everywhere. Um, and then the other one is Go the F to Sleep. And we are a, <laughs> we are a G-rated podcast, so mm-hmm. I can't say what the actual title is. Um, Didn't Samuel Jackson, no joke, do an audio version yeah. of that? Yes, yeah. he did. <laughs> yeah. And that went yeah. absolutely positively everywhere. But in the main, I mean, those are the rare, rare exceptions to, you know, somebody like building a mousetrap and then having it you know, sort of skyrocket to the moon because it's really hard to write a book and have it go kind of huge, right? I was going to say, I'm pretty sure that Everybody Poops, Everyone Poops is Taro Gomi, written by Taro Gomi. Yes. um, And it's actually a book in translation. It's a book that, it's a book that I I believe was bought from Japan um, and then brought here to America and has been enormously successful. And it's one of, I'm, I'm about 99% sure I'm right on that. Um, It's, it's one of my favorite books to bring up. Like when I talk about books in translation that people don't realize, there's a lot of translated titles that people don't realize are translated that came mm-hmm. from other countries. So, um, so that's actually, that's actually a good one. That's a good one. And then, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, there's a big, there's a big range of titles from scatological to <laughs> profound, you know, and um, I mean, the, the picture, picture books are really, 
picture books are just a, like a really interesting art form. You know, a lot of the books you can read on so many different levels. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's great when you find one that's satisfying for the child and also for the parent who has to read it out loud 500 times. Um, you know, not to mention, it's like it is your child's gateway to art. So illustration. That is true. What mm-hmm. do you have? Um, do you have a favorite children's book from either your childhood that you then read to your daughter or one that was new with your daughter that you are just holding on to waiting for many, many years until you and I are grandmothers? Many years. Mm. It's not well, happening anytime soon. So I when I was little, I loved this book called Mrs. Jaster's Miss Miss Jaster's Garden, which was about a spinster who lived in a house by the sea. And um, she was didn't have good eyesight and so she's planting her garden and she doesn't realize there's a little hedgehog in the garden and he's just like taking a nap in the sun so she puts the seeds on him and it's like throwing the dirt around and then he wakes up when she's sprinkling him with water and he thinks it's fun so he like goes back to that spot every day until eventually like the flowers start to grow off his back and then he you know walks off and she's like stop thief she thinks he's a a thief and he gets chased all over town. It's adorable. It's a, that's an adorable oh. picture book from 1974 um, that I loved. So I still have my copy of that. And I'd read that to my daughter and I'm not sure that she loved it as much as I did. Um, when she was little, she really loved Ladybug Girl. Oh, I you know loved Ladybug book? Girl. Yeah. And it's funny. It actually, actually, Allie always reminds me of you because in Ladybug Girl, she does that thing that they do in Kids in the Hall where he's like, she's like you know she's spotting on her brothers from like far away and she's like they're so small like squash them (laughs) but yeah so what are are other books besides children's books what are other books that you don't have to do a who's who of you know literary classics that you that you devoured but what are some books that really kind of were important milestones for you that kind of changed your life or were really important to you or well, the first book I ever read was Green Eggs and Ham. And mm. it was uh, hotly debated because I was at my, I was with my mom at one of her friend's house and I read it and I was so proud of myself. And her friend was like, she didn't read it. She memorized it. And I was like, I remember like, you know, that like <gasps> childhood. How dare you? I, literally, I, mean, I hated I, I still yeah. hate that lady. I don't, like, <laughs> you know, I don't like her at all. I don't like her at all. Um, and then other things, I was a huge series reader. I mean, like Trixie Belden, Nancy Drew. I read them all. I love them. Um, really love them. And then like this pandemic, uh, I got really into the Tudors and I read all the Hillary Mantle, the, um, you know, the Thomas Cromwell will fall trilogy. I read that over Christmas break in like, in like five days or something. I was just, (laughs) 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 it's a, it's a lot. It's a lot of Tudor England. Like it's a lot. (laughs) It's a lot. (laughs) What's the, uh, what's your, what's your comfort food genre? My comfort food is, it's probably historical fiction. I like, I really like to, I, I, would really like to escape into the past, <laughs> far, far past. Oh, I, which I would probably, I would probably wouldn't really like it if I was there. It'd probably be dirty and gross. But, um, but yeah, I do. I just love, I love old timey historical fiction a lot. So. Yeah, I always, I always think that I do. Like I'll be watching a historical series or reading a, a book, and then I realize like, 
the time period that I'm reading about, I could get a tooth infection and, and my life would be miserable and I'd die at 30. So maybe not. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. I just read over the weekend, there's a historian, it's an English British historian, Lucy Worsley. And um, she has a book called Jane Austen at Home, which is a, it's a biography of Jane Austen, but it you know goes into like a lot of like where she lived and her neighbors and, you know, certain things. So I read that book. It was really interesting. And then I read Mansfield Park, which is the only Jane Austen book I had never read. Um, and it was really interesting to read it, th- like after reading the biography, because there was a lot of stuff that I didn't know about Jane Austen that made me like read it differently, you know, like it seems like when you read it, it seems there's a part where it seems like Jane Austen's being really uh, kind of judgmental about poor people and like, Oh, poor people live in small, dirty, cramped houses, noisy. yuck. Um, And you think she's Jane Austen. So she must've been like fancy, you know, like privileged fancy, but she really like her family actually was kind of, was kind of poor and shabby for a long time. And uh, I don't know, it just, it made me read it differently. Like, it made me realize that that was actually kind of her family that she was sending up in that mm. passage and not so much just poor people in general. Like, so. Can you explain the, you mentioned it before. Can you explain the 80-20 ratio of how 20% of books pay for kind of 80% of the other books? A little bit, the kind of the structure of how I always think of it as the To Kill a Mockingbird pays for everything else, mm-hmm. which I know is not exactly true, but it feels kind of close to true. I think book publishing is a lot of it's a swing and a miss, you know, like um, as a book publisher, you have to keep publishing new books, right? Mm-hmm. And it is, I will tell you, it is honestly really hard to tell which ones are going to take off. I mean, there are 20% of the books I think you can look at and say, hmm, I think the librarians are really going to love this. I think the bookstores are really going to love this. Like this, this I think is really going to take off. And then the other ones are like books that you love, books where you think like this person is really talented, but you know, maybe the subject isn't quite as like commercial as those other 20% of the books, right? But you'd like to have a real, I mean, you know, it, it, it's an, honestly kind of another one of those, like it depends things. Like there are people that publishers woo because they want to have a relationship with them. And maybe it's not this book that's the big book, but maybe the next book's going to be the big book, you know? Um, and if you don't get this one, you're not going to get that one. You know, they'll already have a relationship with another publisher. Um, so there's, you know, there's some of that that goes on. And then some of it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? You know, you, you, I mean, I'm going to just make it very simple, right? You've got 10 books and you think out of the 10, two of them are like your breakout titles. And because of that, they get the lion's share of marketing. You know, they get more advertising or they get that author gets brought to a conference or something like that. Um, And then the other ones are more mid-list. Again, doesn't mean they're bad, it just doesn't mean that, you know, maybe maybe their content is quirkier and it just doesn't fit with that conference, you know, um, or doesn't fit with the generic holiday ad that you're going to do or something. So, um, yeah, that's mid list. Is there a is there a low list? Like, is there is there like something that I, and I guess I'm, I'm actually being serious. Like, is there something 
is there are there books that are authors on probation yeah. unloved yeah. babies unloved babies <laughs> um, no there is there are no unloved babies in publishing and um, I think it's pretty much just lead titles lead titles in midlist and then um, you know I mean certainly there are stories about books that get acquired and then their editor leaves. And then the, you know, the book bounces around from editor to editor and never really finds anyone who loves it as much as the first editor did or gives it, you know, as much mm. as attention as, as that one that, that happens, that happens, but no, there's no, there's no um, books. We have no expectation for <laughs> anyway, <laughs> or at least there's not a name for those. That's not, you know, so yeah, well, it's called actually um, academic publishing. Oh, I know, I know. Publishing, though, like I, I don't, yeah, I know so very sad. little about it except that when it works, it really works. Yeah, and when it doesn't, it's mine. Um, oh. That's okay. That's okay. That's okay. Hi, Dad. Thanks for buying my book. <laughs> Books. Uh, one copy. Um, so. I watch uh, the TV show Younger, and it feels mm-hmm. like they just nail publishing mm-hmm. exactly right. Uh, no misses there, that everybody gets paid enough to live in those beautiful houses. Mm-hmm. And um, and if you're an author, they pay that much attention to you all the time. Um, are there any pop culture publishing references that actually do get it close to right? I actually think Younger is pretty good. The, um, oh, come on, the, I, didn't see the, I didn't see the last. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't see the last season. Um, I didn't see the last season of it, but there's like there's enough stuff in Younger that is kind of true to life that makes me wonder, like, if they have someone on the inside feeding them stories, you know, like the. Um, and a lot of it's like this, just the silly stuff, like the Huga book with the, you know, when they were, Diana Trout has a party at her apartment because they're doing a book on Huga. So it's like everybody shows up in like their pajamas and, and, uh, and, uh, she's trying to be all cozy. And then there's, there's another one where, um, it's a, it's a, it's like the bird book. It's a take, I think it's takeoff on like H's for Hawk or something. Um, yeah. Just like, like there's enough things like that where you're like, some somebody's telling them something. Um, no, maybe the apartments and the the apartments, and also like the handsome, handsome guys. Not so much, in my opinion. Sorry. I was going to say, isn't it a Sorry, fairly but, yeah. fairly female dominated industry? Right? I mean, yeah. and I've especially been to children's, especially children's book publishing is really yeah, is, yeah. It's like a herville, so good, um, good. I like it. Good. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think what what other what other. Um, what other book publishing things are out there that are funny to watch or, or see? Um, I am drawing a blank except for the David Hyde Pierce. Uh, oh, actually, David Hyde Pierce was in a movie where he's like a werewolf who works at a publisher. You mean a lot of werewolves in your industry? I, like yeah. like that. I, like I always think of that. That one. That one's just like a totally <laughs> crazy one. And then um, also children's book publishing. The best is Elf. <gasps> oh, like, oh he's like he's like no he's like no tomatoes too aggressive or something <laughs> <laughs> uh, like so, some of some of the stuff in elf is is pretty is pretty 
to, you know, like when, and in the very beginning when they're like, everybody's pushing small town rural this year. That's that to just be white noise. <laughs> in the, in the very beginning when they're like, um, you know, the one book, the, the puppy book's been printed and it's like missing the very last page. And the nun is like, but what about the children? And he's like, I'm not reprinting these books. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's that would be it. That would be a moral dilemma if that happened to me. I mean, I, I would have to figure out what to do. So, yeah. So that stuff is pretty funny. So. Um, and you can do You can do a very cliff notes version of this. So that doesn't got to be long, but um, can you just tell us sort of generally, you said you loved books and you read like industry rags in the library, in the corner of the library and secret under your blanket. Um, but like just cliff notes version, how you got into the industry. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. Um, your co-host and I graduated in 1991, which was sort of... Uh, that was the year Lawrence was born. <laughs> Shut up. Really? I'm kidding. Oh, my God. Close. <laughs> kind of close, though. I mean, yeah. anything, anything's possible now, 92. That, now that we're old. <laughs> um, but anyway, 1991, and uh, I went to work for a, a women's organization. I worked for a women's organization in Washington, D.C., lived close to Alley, and... Um, then I was sort of swept up in the slacker movement. Um, and I quit my job at the women's organization and I got a part-time job at a bookstore and um, did that. And it was good. And then I ended up moving back. I was like, I really do want to get a job in book publishing. Like um, at the women's organization, I was in communications and I thought that was good, but it really wasn't, wasn't what I really wanted to do. Um, so I moved back to New Jersey to my parents and I interviewed for jobs and, um, my bookstore experience actually really helped me get a job. Um, and the other thing that helped me get a job was Seinfeld because I had gone in for, it was, you know, it was 1993 or whatever. And it's expensive when you don't have a job to take the train in and out of the city every day. It was like $20 each way or something that I didn't have to go for job interviews. And I kept going for job interviews and it was like recession-y time. So I'd have like great interviews and then they'd go into a hiring freeze and they'd be like, oh, we really like you, but now we're in a hiring freeze. And I'd be like, oh. <laughs> um, so finally I went in and I had this really good interview with someone and he was like, all right, well, I'll call you and maybe you can come back in. And I said, I had just watched the Seinfeld where I think George Costanza says he's going to do everything. He's going to do everything like the opposite that he oh. normally does, everything <laughs> different. And I said, no, no, I'm not coming back. I said, if you, if you want to give me the job, you will give me the job right now because I can't just keep coming in and out of the city without a job. I was like, this is like, I can't, I just can't. So I was like, I think this is a great, I think it's a great match. I was like, if you want to work with me, why don't you just offer me the job right now? <laughs> and he was like, and it was literally like New York moment. He was like, Hey kid, I like your moxie. <laughs> you know? And I got the job and then, you know, and that's so awesome. Happy. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a great story. Yeah. It was funny. It and then you sort funny. of worked your way up from there. I worked my way up from there. So, and I made $15,000 a year. So, I'm not sure who who made the right decision there. 
well, everybody just clicked off of our podcast. Right. Uh, <laughs> That's what I'm saying. People don't go into book publishing for tons of I mean, it was 1993, but still. We actually yeah. can see uh, when people stop listening to these episodes. Mm-hmm. I'm very interested to see at this minute, 59 minutes in. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I used to buy I used to buy a bagel in the morning and I would eat half it in the for breakfast and I would eat the other half for lunch. That's really sad. And then like hope that like there'd be free sandwiches <laughs> in the building or like yeah. Uh, so is this your think, hard sell for the industry? Mm-hmm. Do you have I think they're trying to bring up like starting salaries. So there's there has also been a lot of conversations about that. Like because you know again they, they want to have a more diverse workforce, but people can't afford to move to New York, you know, um, people like I said, I couldn't afford to keep taking the train in and out. I would have, you know, probably my next step would have been giving up in another month or so because it just, you know, would have been too expensive. Um, So, yeah. So we are noticing um, we, okay. Nationally, we are learning about the supply chain um, and we are learning about this in a bunch of different ways, mostly because we are starting to see shortages of everything. Mm. Has that affected publishing? Yes. <laughs> oh, no. That's not, face. that does not sound good. Oh, Why? no. Oh, what are your presence now? I, I, I basically, I basically uh, hit, hit a wall back somewhere between like June, July, August, um, because it's just there's a worldwide paper shortage. There's a container shortage. There's no cardboard boxes in China. There's the boat that got stuck in the Panama Canal, like then delayed all the other boats. So like boats are just sitting in the harbor, like they can't get in, they can't get out. The, the, the five containers that are available, like can't get packed. Like it's, it's nuts. And that's only what I know with books. Like, I don't know. I don't know what's happening. Paper shortage, all that toilet paper hoarding two years ago has literally come back to bite us in the tush. Um, (laughs) It's bad. It's bad. bad. So, so what the the American Booksellers Association is telling you is October is the new December. If you want to give books for Christmas, buy them now. Like when you see them on the shelf, because come December, like I was basically told in July, June or July, that if we didn't already have something in the hopper for reprints, that they, we're not getting it until February or March. And usually oh, it would take, no. like, I, I would pick, like, pick, illustrated books take longer. Like, it usually does take, like, at least three months, but um, not six months, not, you know, not forever. So, yeah, so that's kind of crazy. That's kind of crazy. The other thing that has been kind of crazy is, um, Ali, people actually are reading more than ever. And, um, even though a lot of the sales over the last years have been backlist and not so much frontlist. I mean, certainly there have been great frontlist books that have sold, but backlist has seen this huge lift. Um, like sales have doubled in some places, you know, hmm. some like some different segments of, of books are just seeing these like huge increases. Um, so that's actually really great. And, and I also, I read a lot of like retail surveys. And um, one of the things that I read, people said that when this pandemic ends, which I don't know, it's like, I guess we're not having like a hard ending. We're having a 
soft ending. It just goes on forever. <laughs> people said they're probably not going to change the way they shopped. And, you know, one interpretation of that is, oh, no, like everyone's going to buy everything from Amazon forever now. But it's not entirely true because a lot of the independent bookstores actually did a great job, like during this pandemic and really like, you know, their customers really appreciated them and grew to love them. Like I have my local independent was actually hand delivering books to people, you know, and like, you know, reaching out and talking to people on the phone and stuff. So like they really built their community into like this very strong, solid, dedicated thing now. So it's not, it's not all bad news. There's there's a lot of good news out there. Well, that's a very optimistic place to end. I think that's where we should, uh, we should end on a, on a happy note um, because there's uh, we don't have a lot of happy news these days. So yeah. for National Book Month, let's end on on that. Heather Lennon, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed talking to you both. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Utterly Moderate Podcast. Before we go, we want to remind you to visit our website, utterlymoderatenetwork.com. There you can find all of our podcast episodes and their companion resources, our guide to reliable news outlets, the contact page where you can suggest topics for future shows, and more. That's utterlymoderatenetwork.com. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us on our next episode. And until then, we'll play you out with friends of the show, the Riders in the Sky. Happy trails to you until we meet again happy trails to you keep smiling until then who cares about the clouds when we're together just sing a song and bring the sunny weather happy trails to you till we meet again Take a liking to you.